I trust you're having a good Independence Day weekend. Obviously, this weekend is a time when we gather with family and friends and uh, we take on the full celebration of summer. Vacations are in full swing by now, and uh, for many people, um, fam- for many you know, homes and settings, family life gets an added emphasis during these months. Fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and grandparents, uh, we focus on the kids, don't we? And summer can be a wonderful time. I'm aware also that it can be a time of great stress for a lot of families because like, okay, what are we going to do with these kids for the next 10 weeks? And 10 weeks sometimes seems a long time. And so for parents particularly, they're wondering about their role and how things are going. The, the uh, online site called Inside Hook, is, which is a site that I often go to to get information for, the, um, for Direct Line and on each Wednesday night for the radio show, uh, they re- released a survey of 6,000 fathers that they took in June. The survey came out, the uh, results came out this week. Some 6,000 men all over 18 with children responded. And uh, it shows some of the stresses and some of the things that fathers feel. Um, And we'll get to mothers in just a few minutes. But in terms of just the whole summer and parenting and dealing with kids, this is some of the ways in which fathers are thinking right now. Of the surveys and the 6,000 plus men who took it, 61% of the fathers who took the survey were married. What's interesting to me is that 18% are single and 8% are divorced. So more than a quarter of the people, men who took the survey are heading up single parent homes where they have children. Uh, what's interesting though is that more of them, of that particular group, more of them were never married having as compared to those who were married once and now have children. I don't know if that's reflective across the culture as a whole, but it certainly is reflective of the group of men who took the survey. And remember, the survey was for those who chose to take the survey. It wasn't like a census per se. Of those who took the survey, the fathers have some opinions about themselves. For example, they see themselves better off as compared to their fathers. Namely, if these are guys in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, their fathers are in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the younger men say, hey, I'm doing life better. My life is in a better setting than what my dad's was. And they also said that we are, I expect my children's lives to be better than mine is. So it's like there's expectation that the culture or life in whole, as a whole is getting better. They see their primary responsibility as being teachers which is an interesting thing. Now, to understand that slide, you have to look at the left-hand side and look at the big green block. 37% of men who are fathers today with children in the home see themselves as being teachers versus they see their, their own fathers on the right-hand side, on the lower, lower right-hand side, they saw their fathers as being disciplinarians more so than teachers. And when it comes to that business of teaching, they have a very clear understanding that they have a responsibility and they're expecting to teach their children well in a number of different areas of responsibility. You can see on this slide, for example, when it comes to fishing or tying a tie, riding a bike, shaving, driving, pitching a tent, managing money, fighting, swimming, shooting a gun. The blue line represents fathers today versus the red line fathers of a generation ago. So you can see that they're saying, I have a responsibility and a plan in place to teach these various aspects of life and these, this skill set to my kids. And so they believe they're going to teach, if you will, to a greater degree of effectiveness 
as compared to the generation that raised them. There were a number of items of humor that showed up on the survey. I want to point one out to you. And that is, if you could think of, okay, if you think about movies where the father is in, the, there's a father in the movie, who would be the best father model that you could think of in a movie? This is the answer they gave. Mufasa of the Lion King. <laughs> Which is downright scary to me that all of us guys who are dads were beat out by a lion and a cartoon at that. What's that say about us all? Well, I bring all that to your attention because obviously men who are fathers have a responsibility to lead their children. Parents, both men and women, have a responsibility to lead. And we're starting a leadership series today, evaluating what the Bible has to say about the home. How do you lead at home in your family? How do you lead at work in, the, in your job and your workplace? How do you lead your own life? And then finally, by the time we get to the end of July, how do you lead in the church? And we're going to learn some of the characteristics of what it means to be a better leader in all those settings and what we should look for in the people who are leading. And we're doing it from this perspective. If I could remind you of what we did last weekend. Last weekend, uh, I spoke on this matter of following Jesus Christ in regards to baptism. It's been an exciting time around here because last, over the last two weekends, we've had 31 people get baptized and we've got some more people scheduled for next week who couldn't join us last week and all that sort of stuff. So we've had reason for great celebration, but we set that discussion of baptism within the context of following. And you can see that the logo from last week's message, it looks like water and it looks like, you know, and you have the word follow. And we, we say that a Christian is someone who follows. We follow Jesus Christ. We follow the call and expectations of Scripture. And perhaps that's, you'll recall that, that logo from last week. It's intentionally close to the logo that we're using for this series in July. Notice how there's, there's some similarities between the two. Same colors, same one word, uh, leader, same one word title, and so forth and so on. And we're doing that very intentionally because of this reason. See, you can't lead unless you're willing to follow. A scriptural viewpoint of leadership always starts with an understanding of following. Biblical leadership is never about lording it over someone else, making demands, if you will, to suit your own ego. Christian leadership, whether it be at home, at work, here in the church, it always starts anywhere. Christian leadership starts with this understanding that any sort of leading is only best accomplished from a position of servanthood. Our acquiescence, if you will, to Jesus' leadership in our lives, personally and corporately. And once we get that straight, then we can talk about how to lead at the house, to lead at work, to lead in the church, and so forth. So we have to say that leading starts with following, and we have intentionally tied the two, both last week's message to this series that we're involved in right now. So with all that in mind, what can we say about leadership in the home, about leadership in our, in our families from the perspective of following God? Well, we're going to look at the book of Deuteronomy today, and uh, we're going to get there in just a minute. So you might want to grab a Bible and get to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible in, so it's just a little ways in, not even a quarter of the way into Scripture. We'll be reading in chapter 6 in just a moment or two. But before we get there, I want to give you some observations about, about leadership in the home, in a family, uh, and then we'll get to Deuteronomy chapter 6. But some observations coming from Scripture as a whole that will set the foundation for what we'll read in Deuteronomy 6. 
First of all, an observation that you may not realize or think about at first glance, and that a following God leadership model within the home is not gender-based. It's not just about men and fathers when we talk about leadership in the home. You have within Scripture lots of cases where men led, and you have lots of cases where women led. And in order to kind of push against this idea that leadership in the home is exclusively a male situation, let me give you a story from Scripture of where a woman led and to a, to a very great effectiveness in her home. The setting for this story is found in 1 Samuel 25. The scriptures that we're going to read in that are going to be on the screen, so don't worry about finding it yet. But here's the story. You may recall that the first king of the nation of Israel was a fellow by the name of Saul. And as his reign advanced and as he kind of grew in power, he began to wander away from following God. Remember we said that if you want to if you want to lead, you have to follow. And if you want to lead well, you have to follow God. And so as he began to spread his influence around the nations around him and within Israel, his willingness to follow God began to dissipate. And so God would move and he would no, wander off around here. And the public opinion at first was all behind him. But as they began to see, as the public began to see that and this guy isn't always following God, he wanders off now and then. Well, the public opinion began to shift away from supporting him to the next guy who was going to be king, a guy by the name of David, a young man. And eventually he did become king, but not without a national struggle. There was, in essence, a civil war in order for to move from Saul being king to David being king. But once Saul's lack of wisdom was discovered, that public opinion began to shift to where they wanted David to be king. And that period of shifting was a very difficult time for the whole nation and particularly for David. Saul literally would run after David with his army in order to kill David. And we're gonna look at a story about that next week. But so David had these men around him and they know that he's gonna be the king coming up and they are literally a band on the run. They're a group of men, a band of men who are running for their lives on a regular basis. And one point, they get out in the wilderness and they befriend a group of shepherds. And the shepherds are all servants of a guy by the name of Nabal, Mr. Nabal. And so you've got David's men and you've got uh, Mr. Nabal's shepherds all out there in the fields together. And they do life together for a period of time. And, and the, the David's men are watching over the shepherds to make sure nothing, nobody attacks the shepherds and everything. And so eventually the shepherds, Mr. Nabal's shepherds say, hey, look, we're going to have a party back at the house. The next party is going to be when we shear all the sheep. And we, you've done such a great job of protecting us and watching over us. Next time we have the party, we want you to come to the house and we're going to party together. And so that's what happens. They, they, they move along in time. It's time to shear the sheep. The sheep are taken back to Mr. Nabal's house. The, the shepherds go there and David's men follow along expecting to have this party and they get to Mr. Nabal's place and he's not happy at all. He says, I didn't invite you. I don't know who you are. Get out of here. You're not, you're not welcome in my home. It was a bad move on his part. It was rudeness. It was inhospitable. It was, a, it was not a good thing. And he was, in, the, in essence, offending the next king of Israel. David really wasn't very happy about this. And so they come back to David and they say, it's not very good over there at Nabal's house. Look what happened. Read the scriptures with me. David's men turned around and went back. So they're going back to David now. When they arrived, they reported every word because Nabal had been pretty rough in the things he'd said to them. 
David said to his men, okay, you think you're, he's going to mess with us? You guys, strap each of you strap on your sword. So they did. And David strapped his on as well. About 400 men went up with David while 200 stayed with the supplies. It was going to be a big party. But now since Nabal has said, you're not having it in my house, they're not happy at all. So one of Nabal's servants says to Abigail, Nabal's wife, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our masters greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. The whole time we were out in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day they were a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. And so we got a problem, Mrs. Nabal. And the shepherd says, now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He's such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. What was the result of it all? Well, Abigail, Mrs. Nabal, this is Abigail Nabal, quickly did some leading in the family. She gathered some supplies. She got some comfort food together and she went racing out to meet the army of David's men as they were coming against, as as they were advancing. And in a nutshell, she talked David into backing down from invading the home that she shared with Nabal. She averted a disaster. They would have all been killed. But quick, quick thinking, quick leadership on her part, this move that she made very quickly, very smart move, It changed her life forever. And when I say changed her life forever, I mean it changed her life because it wasn't long after that 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 Mr. Nabal actually died. And when he died, David heard about that and he goes, man, there's that really sweet woman I met with all that comfort food. Man, she knew how to cook. Smart lady too. She was able to, to talk me down from doing something really stupid and killing somebody. So you know what he did? He married her. She became David's wife. Leadership in the home, friends, is not gender-based. Both men and women can lead, do lead, and should lead families. It's not gender-based. Here's another observation about leadership in the home, and that is that parents and leaders in the home, adults, have a primary responsibility of leadership. It's for parents. We read this in Ephesians chapter 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Okay, so here's the promise. Honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. That's a commandment. That's what children are supposed to do. Then as that that thinking about what it's like to be in the house, as that thinking goes on, Paul the Apostle says, Fathers, some of you have Bibles that would say parents, Excuse me, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's quite plain as you look at that scripture. There are words here for children, namely, honor your folks. But then there are words for those who are leading in the house. Those who lead in the house to avoid something, they are to avoid exasperating their children. And in lieu of exasperating their children... They are to teach and to lead children in the home to a full understanding of God's plan for each individual life. This is not new thinking when this was written, when Paul wrote this just a few years after Jesus died and and then rose again and went to heaven. This was something that was part of Israel's life for many, many years. As a matter of fact, think about the nation of Israel because we move our way toward Deuteronomy now so you can catch where all this is going. What Paul is saying here in Ephesians 6 is really 
only an echo, if you will, of what Moses had told the nation many years earlier. Do you remember the story of Deuteronomy? The nation of Israel had been slaves in Egypt. They, they had been, I mean, it was a horrible situation. They were living there as slaves, literally slaves. Moses, from among them, raised to be, was, kind of grew up to be the leader of the nation of Israel, the people who were slaves. He led a coup against Pharaoh of Egypt, and they were able to all escape. They made their way across the Red Sea. They wandered around in the Sinai Peninsula for some 40 years. And, and at the end of 40 years, they were, they were camping here, there, and everywhere. At the end of 40 years, God led them to, this, to the banks of the Jordan River, and God said, when you cross the river, it's going to be your land. I mean, they were out. They were a nation, somewhere between one and three million of them looking for a place to They wanted to sing, this land is my land, this land is your land. That's what they were looking for, okay? They were someplace they could call their own. And in Deuteronomy 6, at the the very end of Moses' life, at the end of his leadership career, this is what he he says. Read with me Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see if it's not very similar to what we read in Ephesians chapter 6. Moses is saying, these are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe and that the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. So I'm saying, I'm reminding you of everything that's important. All right? You're about to cross into the Jordan. You're about to get new land. As you get there, remember this. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel. Here's what he wants them to hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. What should you do? In light of the fact that we serve one God, which was so different than all the other nations around them, all the other nations around them were polytheistic nations. They had more than one God. God's made of wood and stone, but they serve one true living God. In light of that, verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Now listen and see how close this is to what we read in Ephesians 6 about teaching our children. Impress these commandments. Impress what God has done. Impress them on your children. How do you do that? Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, when you go to Walmart in your minivan. That's what he's saying. All right? Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your households and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, namely to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you, A land with large flourishing cities you didn't build, houses with all kinds of goods you didn't provide, wells you didn't dig, vineyards and olive groves you didn't plant. When you eat and are satisfied, when all this happens to you in the days ahead, what I want you to do, I want you to tell your kids, I want you to remind them wherever you go, as you're driving down the road, when you go in and out of the house, there should be something on the doorframe of your house to remember, to be reminded. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery. There's the key to leadership in the home, folks. Parents, leaders in the home, are to tell the family story. And it may be that you're the parent, you may be the uncle. You may be the grandmother seven times removed. I don't know how that all works. 
But whatever the case, if there are children within your sphere of influence, it is your responsibility to relate the work of God to the children under your influence. We are to tell the story of God's faithfulness to our kids, to our nieces and nephews, our grandchildren. And that story should be so familiar to them, it's almost as if it's, it's written right on their forehead. He said, bind them around your forehead. I mean, actually, Jews today have little boxes that they put on their foreheads from time to time to remind them of the story of God's faithfulness. They have leather things that they wrap around their arms, around their wrists, that tell the story of God's faithfulness. And when they go, for example, in Israel to the Western Wall, they'll wrap that around their, around their wrist all the way up to their arm here. It should be as familiar to us like looking at the wrist for, for a watch, or these days, every time we pull out our phone, the kids these days don't wear watches, they will use their phones, you all know that, right? And as they look, out their fo- look at their phones, the first thing they should see is, oh, I'm reminded of God's faithfulness. That's how common this should be within our homes. Leaders within our families are to teach about, teach the story of God. We are to do that without exasperating the children, but we are to teach, it says in Ephesians 6 again. Do not exasperate your children instead. Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And now the question all of you are going, okay, I'm I'm in, Wayne. I buy the story. I'll tell the story. I know that it's my responsibility. Regardless of who the kids are around me, it's my responsibility to tell the story. How can I do that? How can I move toward teaching children about God while not exasperating them at the very same time? There are lots of ways to do that. First one, though, today, we're going to deal with today, and that is you have to be consistent in integrity. If children in the home see leaders of parents who do not follow God in all things, then they're seeing us like Saul. We follow God on some things, but oh, just this one thing, no, God's over here, we're going to stay over here. And they notice that. Kids see that inconsistency in our lives. I mean, This thought comes to mind. You've heard it said before. Apparently, you can fool some of the people some of the time, right? You can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can never fool your kids. I know that. You never can. So I want to ask you, when it comes to dealing with children, or for that matter, your own life, start with your own life, are you consistent? I don't mean consistent in things that are ungodly. I don't mean consistent in things like anger or dramatic outbursts or unkindness or dishonesty. I mean, are you consistent in your kindness, in your instructions, in your care? Are you consistently showing your kids and those under your responsibility how to be generous? Are you honest? In other words, do the kids in your home or in your influence, do they know that when you say something that you're going to follow through with it? Watch the screens to test your sense of honesty. See if this doesn't sound familiar.
you're buying promise to quit my job at the laser tag place in one month's time and become a lawyer that crusades for the underdog signed Jay Parrish. No, Jay, I didn't ask you to write this. That's not my job. My job is industry. So, <laughs> I'm going to interrupt the video and say, in some ways, a home setting is even more transparent than the dentist looking at your teeth and immediately knowing if you've been brushing and flossing on a regular basis. I mean, if the dentist can look in your mouth and know immediately just from that, how about the kids around you? They know your life. You can fool some of the people some of the time. You can fool all of the people at the church. But you can't fool your kids. As you lead in your home and you're in your family, how's your consistency in the good things? If your leadership is only found by being consistent in ungodly characteristics, then, excuse me, we have a problem, don't we? There's a story found in scripture that I find quite haunting in this regard. I mean, it really does get under my skin a little bit because I'm, I'm so disturbed by it. It's the story of a family uh, by the name of Eli. And Eli failed in leading his children. Maybe you know about Eli. Eli was in charge of, a, of the religious life of the nation. He was the priest. It was an important role. It was a role that was supposed to be handed down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. It was a position and a job of great honor. But sadly, while Eli really performed his job quite well, the same could not be said for his two sons, the next generation down, and Eli allowed them to get up to all kinds of craziness. When they would perform their functions in the, in the temple, they would extort people. They would ask for bribes, they would take food from people, and they would even rape the women. God noticed and said, I'm not going to let these guys be in charge. And so there was a military battle, and they died. Eli was back at the house waiting to see the results and hear what the results of the battle were. And listen, read on the screens with me what happened when the messenger came back to say that Hophni and Phinehas, those are some names, right? They were dead. The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. He told Eli, I've just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened to my son? The man replied, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured. Eli fell backward off his chair. His neck was broken and he died. He was old and heavy. He led Israel for 40 years. It's a tragic tale of a man who didn't lead his family well. Sadly, tragically, hauntingly, the sad story doesn't end there. See, if you know the rest of the story, you recall that when it became apparent that Eli's sons were corrupt, God arranged for another little boy to be brought into the family, to be brought into Eli's influence. Um, back before Hophni and Phinehas died, that little boy's name was a fellow by the name of Samuel. 
And Eli was able to teach Samuel how to live in a far more righteous way than he'd taught his own sons. But tragically, hauntingly, Samuel followed Eli's example when it came to raising his own sons. See, Samuel grew up while Hophnius and Phinehas were involved in their extortion work in the temple. But when they died and when Eli died, the responsibility of the temple, instead of going down through Eli's family, moved to Samuel's family, and Samuel began having children. He, like Eli, did his job well in his responsibilities in leading the nation. But also, like Eli, he didn't teach his children well. And look what happened. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. They served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice, just the way like Hophni and Phinehas had done. So all the, Israel, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you were old, your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. And if you know the rest of the story, then you know this was a significant shift in Israel's life. One that God never wanted. Samuel's son's behavior was so atrocious that the people said, we want a king to lead us instead of a priest. And at that moment, Israel went from being a theocracy where God led to essentially a dictatorship where a king led. And it occurred because Samuel was consistent with Eli, all right. He was consistent in raising his sons the wrong way. He was consistent in the wrong way. And the nation never recovered at all. And if you look at the events taking place in Israel and in the Middle East today, the civil wars that are going on in Syria and, and the situations that we have in Iraq and all of that, and the strife that is in Jerusalem this weekend, much of it, if not all of it, can be traced back to those two men, Eli and Samuel, and their failings to lead their own children well. Because if they had done their job, the nation would never have asked for a king. And if they hadn't had kings... There wouldn't have been these petty splits of the, of the nation into two and people wouldn't have been carted off into slavery by the Assyrians and the Babylonians and Israel would not have ever... I mean, it, it, history would look completely different if those two fellows had raised their boys right. It's an alarming caution. Godly, righteous leadership in our families and in our homes is essential. And I would say this. The best response we can give today is we can pray. We can pray that God would enable those of us who are adults who have responsibility for children in any way. We can pray that God would call us to consistent lives of integrity so that our lives will speak long before our words speak. We're going to talk, yeah. But so that when children look at us, they'll say, that's the kind of person I want to be because that guy, that woman, follows God. And it's never a situation where they say one thing, God moves, and they don't move. Here's what we're going to do, friends. I'm going to pray for you. And then we're going to invite you to worship the Lord as the worship team comes. And I would suspect that there are people in this room here today who would say, I've got an issue in my life I need to pray about, or I've got an issue in my uncle's life, or whatever. We're going to have a group of people who would be glad to pray with you. Beyond that, though, if you're here today and you say, I'm a leader in my family, and I have responsibilities to lead children, my kids, my nieces, my grandkids, whatever the case. 
If you'd like prayer about that, we'd like to pray with you about that as well. So would you stand together, please, and let's pray. Let's begin by how I'm going to lead us in prayer. Father, we want to lead well. We have lots of adults in this room, God, who are responsible for children. And as we are responsible for those children, Lord, help us to lead in a way that is full of integrity, in a way that is full of uh, real life, with real words we want to teach, but we want, Lord, that teaching to come not from just words, from our lives as well. We want, to, we want to do what we say. We want to just, we don't want to be like that kid in the dentist chair that says, I'm going to floss and then doesn't. Lead us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd like to pray about this matter or another matter, there'll be a number of us here at the front. We'd be glad to pray with you. Let's be people who worship the Lord together.